Hi, everybody. This is Susan, marijuana addict in California. Very, very, very grateful to be among you all tonight. Marion, thank you for the invitation to share my story. Um, I have been looking forward to an event such as this, exactly this, for a long time because uh, I have been a marijuana addict for decades and um, and just shy of three years of going without marijuana use at all. And I originally came to my sobriety through the rooms of AA and um, have always felt like the little secret in the back of the room. <laughs> so I am 100% full on out and happy to be sharing my story, which I will start, I guess, with the beginning. Um, I grew up in Florida. Most Well, actually, I grew up moving around quite a bit when my dad was a corporate ladder climber. And my folks were still married, and my mom had MS and got pregnant with my brother, which exacerbated her MS, and my dad just kind of was overwhelmed with that much responsibility and, and kind of left our family. And so my mom decided to move to Florida and stay with her folks who were supposed to support her, and they did. They they were very loving and supporting to her, but they were very bitter towards my father, so we were kind of like the, the the not quite fully welcome people in the house. Um, we eventually got our own house and I did what every, you know, preteen and teenager does in, in Florida in the seventies. And that is try to find your own tribe. And, um, I just, I just never felt like I was cool enough. My sister's two years older. My brother was seven years younger I could tell that the adults, all the adults I knew had some kind of comfort and ease and sense of entitlement that um, I didn't have, that they didn't share with me. And so when I finally got old enough to start having my own little one-sums or two-sums, you know, a best friend or boyfriend, this and that, I felt, I finally started feeling like people my own age uh, are where I'm going to find my comfort and belonging in life. And what we did was whatever our parents weren't doing. So we would try to get into trouble. And it was, you know, very, very petty trouble. It wasn't like we, you know, did any robberies or things like that. But um, at 13, I got a boyfriend who was 16 who had a big 67 Le Mans, and we just tore up the town driving all over and parking and doing what teenagers do. Marijuana was not part of the scene back then. The very first time I ever smoked, um, my sister made me because she and her friends smoked. Um, and I knew that they did because they would, you know, do that whenever mom was out of the house and I was aware of what was going on. Didn't really want any part of it. And um, they would, she made me smoke with her one time just so that I couldn't tell on her. So I wouldn't knock. And I didn't want to be anything like my older sister, so that probably saved me several years of before I ever got into it. Um, and I was more into boyfriends. I, I, when I, I mean, I had trouble at school. There were I, I was trying to be a goody goody. I was a cheerleader. I was in band. Um, I thought, you know, I could just make friends with anybody. But every once in a while, I would sort of misstep and say the wrong thing, and get somebody pissed at me. And there was a group of girls. Anybody from the South might know 4-H, who, um, they were, they were tough. And, uh, I said the wrong thing to one of them and they wanted to kill me. And that's no lie. And there was one 
kid who had just transferred from New York who kind of saved me. And then I met the boyfriend with the car and that saved me because he'd take me to school and pick me up. And so I found my salvation in young people my age and just didn't feel like adults cared about me or knew about me or were going to deal with anything that was going on on the interior of my world. So um, I I married that boyfriend <laughs> that I met at 13. He joined the Air Force, and uh, that was my ticket out of there. A month after high school graduation, I was out of there. And we moved around a bit and landed in Washington, D.C., and that's where things started getting a little psychedelic. Um, he, I think, was alcoholic, and he would go out with his buddies, and he would come back smashed. And one of those nights he came back smashed, he was saying, Susan, Susan, she's here. And I'm like, who's here? And he's like, Deb. Or Debbie, Debbie, she's here. And I said, who's here? And he said, Susan. I'm like, I am Susan. So that kind of broke the story open on that. And there was some other woman in his life. And it left me really just shattered because I, you know, was taking complete safety in him. I was, I was just, I was codependent. And that was probably my first ism. So I was without my ism. Um, and I, it left me so shattered. I just lost a bunch of weight. I threw myself into my job. I had been working at credit unions, traveling around with him, and um, ended up working at Pentagon Credit Union. And somehow had, because I was willing to take advantage of this, go to school at night, you know, they pay for school. I was doing that, poured myself into that. And there were free aerobics on the base where I lived at Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. And I just got super fit, super cute, and just super busy and met my next uh, salvation in the form of a bodybuilder boyfriend who just partied his butt off, had a bunch of bodybuilder friends, and I was suddenly in a really cool clique, and they all shot steroids, and one of them was a bartender, and we went to his bar every night, and I was really never alcoholic, but I definitely indulged as much as I wanted to. Um, I never felt like a craving for alcohol, I just felt a craving for belonging. Um, one time I remember we were all going to Redskins game and somebody had some marijuana and somebody knew how to make a pipe out of an apple and we're smoking it in the car on the way to the Redskins game with our friends and their cars around us. And one of them was a cop. And I was like, Oh my God, this, this was really scary. So that's as much as my marijuana use was up until, uh, I ended up breaking up with that boyfriend and lo and behold became the girlfriend of his ex-roommate before that boyfriend and I moved in together he was roommates with this other bodybuilder I started dating that guy that guy was addicted to Dilaudid and had a lot of cocaine around and I didn't want anything to do with any of that but I was going to school full-time at this point and um, he he kept insisting oh you got to do just a little line of coke it'll help you study you got to test tomorrow it'll help you stay up all night and so I actually found that I liked it and I I did very very little of it but I ended up keeping like one little line of it on my dresser and saving it for like the next night, next time a girlfriend and I would go out and I would just have a very strong feeling about that thing. That thing was magnetic and I would smell it and sniff it and I would feel the excitement. I'm like, I don't even need to go into how much of a problem this is going to be to know that I have a problem. And it actually caused me to move. I had the opportunity to go to school full time at a full you know, I was doing uh, my first two years of college and I came out to California because where else would you go if you can move anywhere and you got to go to school and you had straight eight. So I applied to Pepperdine, got in, 
the first house I moved into, I took a room in a house in Malibu, and the kids were out at the pool that, that lived there. Their parents owned the house, and they all rented to Pepperdine students. And they asked me, do they want pot? And I'm like, no, I don't want pot. No, I don't want to hang out with you guys. So I ended up getting a place on my own and uh, ended up not going to Pepperdine because my uh, transcripts would require that I do a whole extra year. One, they're, they're a Christian college, and I somehow missed that. And all the times that I'd poured over the uh, the catalog from Malibu, California, and the uh, the the, um, the ocean and the campus, I missed the part that it was a Christian college and you had to take a year of theology. And at the time, 20 grand a year was a lot for school. And I was like, I'm not going to take that loan on. So I did what I had lied on my exit exam at um, NBC in D.C. I was an intern there. And I said on my exit exam to them, I said, I'm going to go to film school at UCLA. So I got myself on campus and went to the department. And they said, oh, no, 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 we only have five positions. And we have 5,000 applicants. You'll never get in. And I'm like, five? That's one, you know, it's four more than I need. I was stoked to hear that there were that many. And somehow, I guess with my um, NBC, you know, credentials and all the journaling I had done, I was able to put together a really good application. And I got into film school at UCLA. And I was, was like the height of my life at that time. And um, still, though, it wasn't feeling safe and managed to find yet another boyfriend who'd also been to film school. He and I got married real quick, moved in together. And by the time I'd done my thesis film, which was sort of a thank you to him for all that he'd sacrificed so that I could do what I was doing because he was working full time while I was doing this. Um, he, he did this one thing where I needed him to do a little voiceover for me and he wouldn't do it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that kind of ruins my whole film. And I just realized, what's what's my future going to be? Is this, this, this a joke? Is this whole film deal a joke? And I'm going to be married to this guy who doesn't support me. And I'm looking at him like, I don't think I even love him. So I broke up with that guy. And then I was kind of shattered again, working in film, doing, you know, assistant to the director and uh, PA work and stuff like that. Um, the part where marijuana comes in is, I was living in Santa Monica at that time, and I'm getting closer and closer and closer to the place where marijuana became my everyday, every hour situation, which was moving to Venice Beach. When I lived in Santa Monica, you know, it was around, I remember the first first night I moved into my place in Santa Monica, the guy next door is a pro beach volleyball player. He says, hey, you want to come over and smoke some pot? I'm like, what is this moving into places? And everybody's like, come, come smoke pot with us. It's just so given it's so normal, it's like, hey, we'd like to join us for a beer. It's just so normal here. And um, so the part where it became kind of an issue is when I finally uh, had a boyfriend who didn't want to stay in Santa Monica. He wanted to move to Northern California to go make some money helping his family sell this house. And I said, okay, but if it doesn't work out, we've got to come back. He said, okay. And we were up there, and it wasn't working out. And I said, you promised. And he says, okay, but I'll only go back to California if we can uh, move to Venice. And this boyfriend and I had started smoking pot together. And I was, like, enjoying the one-on-one feeling of safety that I had by having an other. And then somehow that marijuana really enhanced it. I'd look at him and go, oh, my God, not only is this that that love drug that I have, but this is that love drug times two because there's this whole other 
feeling of intimacy. It was just enhanced, and I loved it. So he and I would go hiking and all that stuff, and just really loved it. And I considered it a sacrament. He and I got it. I, he got me into some really good things to read. You know, Krishnamurti and the Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda, and Cosmic Trigger, all those kind of you know head trip books. Um, and I thought I was really into finally the cool kid groove of living in California and knowing the esoteric stuff. So he and I come back to Southern California and moved to Venice. And um, that is just oh, like the Mecca for, for stonerdom. I'm pretty sure if, if, if Amsterdam isn't it, I've never been there, but it's got to be Venice. Um, and it just, it became what we did with everyone. You know, one of the questions is, you know, do you find your friends, uh, you choose your friends based on who the, if they use marijuana with you. It's like, yeah, my whole community uses it. So pretty much it was like, hey, everybody, we just moved in. Come on up and smoke on our balcony with us. And um, it did seem like a problem. I didn't, I just thought it was normal. Like people drink beer here and there. I would smoke here and there. The only problem was is that it was expensive and, and it was before it was legal. It wasn't that easy to get. It wasn't every day. We even smoked with our landlord. You know, it was just what people did. And I got into all these different jobs. Um, one of which was, um, painting tiles. I hand-painted Malibu tiles, and I love doing anything arty. I'm an artist now still. And um, I would smoke before I'd go there, and I'm like, now am I, am I screwing my employer out of the full value? And I'm like, I don't think so. And then that employer would smoke with me. And then I became an art model, which I loved. And then I would smoke and find out that, you know, I'm, I'm getting paid to do yoga and meditate. Um, they don't really care what's going on in my head. The only difference it made to me was that it made, you know, a two-hour session feel like four hours. Um, so, you know, I, I, they, I ended up having all these jobs where smoking was sort of part of the job. Somehow I met some Burning Man people, I guess through the art community, yeah, and we ended up going to Burning Man, and I loved it so much because of all the art and happiness and spontaneous just fun going on that I, I actually didn't need to smoke like smoking, getting the apparel out and getting the apparatus out and all that was a, it was a waste of time because what was happening was so much more fun. It was like the heightened experience that I always thought the high was supposed to get me to. It was like, this was happening 24 seven. And, and I had met somebody during one of my art uh, modeling gigs who had been talking about it and, we ended up dating, and I said, listen, I, I'm kind of done with this just goofing off stuff. I'm not going to have sex with anybody until I'm married and to somebody who wants to have children. And he said, I really respect that. And uh, at that time, I was a hardcore mountain bike rider. I would ride from my house in Venice up into the Santa Monica Mountains all the way to Malibu and back and you know do these long seven-hour rides up in the mountains and back. And that was our first date. He went and bought a mountain bike to, to go on the first date with me and us. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's pretty committed. I like this. And we fell in love so hard, so fast. And I guess we were so eager to get to the part where we were engaged so that we could maybe have sex. We went to Burning Man and got married legally at Burning Man. <laughs> and I remember thinking I, I really hit the jackpot. I was so happy just sitting in the front of this old RV that he'd owned just for this purpose to go to Burning Man 
and I'd sit there, roll my joints and smoke them and watch the parade of weirdness go by and not even really want to participate in any of the other stuff. I'm not a drinker. I'm not really a psychedelic drug doer. And just watch it all go by and go, wow, I'm so happy. But when, then he and I got into fight. And when we realized we're, we're doing something really stupid here. Let's not even move in together. In fact, when we get back, let's just see if we can dissolve this legal thing that we just did. Uh, to this day, he's my best friend. We we stayed friends, but the whole getting married and, and thinking we could work things into a family was, was absurd. But when we got back, I, I had gone from that extreme high of thinking, okay, I have everything I want to, I have none of that now. And the part where he was filling my time with otherness, with, with making me feel safe and belonging, uh, wasn't happening. I still had a, a key to the RV, and I would go and sit in the RV and roll joints and smoke and try to get that feeling back. I'm like, okay, there's something very sad about this. And I maybe got a clue because I think one of the gigs I had around that time, I was working at Santa Monica College doing um, enrolling folks into the extension classes. And I thought, you know, I really just can't afford to smoke anymore. Let me just quit. And I'd go, oh, gosh, I can't quit. I'd come home and, and well, there's the joint that I was going to give to so-and-so. And I'd go, well, let me just smoke that. And then I'd find myself, I had to come home during lunch on my lunch hour to smoke and then go back to work. I'm like, okay, now I know for sure that I have gone past the point of normalcy with this substance. And I thought, okay, let me, let me do this. Let me just say I'm going to be a high-functioning marijuana addict. And I did that for what was a number of years, but my judgment was impaired at that point. And this husband that I didn't stay married to um, said, you know, you're, you're such a good art model. You, you, if you really are having money troubles, what you ought to do is, is work as a dominatrix. I know this dungeon where... Um, people wear beautiful lingerie and you don't, you know, it's all under your call. And why don't you go check it out and see if you'd be interested in doing this thing. And it's not my thing at all. BDSM is not really my thing. But the part where I was already comfortable being naked in front of people because they were drawing me as an art model, I thought, oh, I'm just stepping down off the stage and now I'm doing performance art. And sure enough, if I didn't enjoy going out to the back of the rooms, we'd hang out during the day and wait for people to come in and they'd interview you and go, okay, how about you? And I go do a session and I made really good money. And then I had these women friends and we would go stand out in the back in our high heels, smoke joints out, you know, in the back of the building. And I'm like, wow, I feel like a hooker. Um, (laughs) And a lot of those sessions, I ended up working at all the dungeons there are in, in LA just because the money was good. And I had such a fear of, of not being able to support myself living on my own. Um, and some of those sessions, people would bring cocaine in, or some of them would have private, some of the girls would have private clients and you'd go to that, that person's penthouse in Century City and they would kind of insist that you do cocaine so that they knew you were cool. And so I did a little bit of that. I didn't really like it, but I was definitely in this dark, weird world that I didn't know how to get out of. Um, And then what happened was something really weird that I couldn't explain. One of 
this same ex-husband that I didn't stay married to. Um, I finally got a job working with some artists that he was working for. Um, they turned these high-end vintage warplanes into high-end furniture. And I would go down to this company and answer the phones and package up the product and ship it off. And they asked me, did I want to go do this one little job for them, which entailed flying to Denver, get renting a truck, picking up all these parts from this one company, and then driving it back. And I really did not want to do it. They said, well, you can take somebody with you. It was going to be my birthday weekend. They said, oh, you can stop in Vegas and party. I'm like, eh, it's not really my thing. I don't really want to do it. But I did it because I had this work ethic that if your employer gives you the opportunity to work and make money, you're supposed to say yes. So I did it. The other person that they had set up to go with me um, want to go. I ended up doing it alone. And something happened. It was the first time in my life that something like this happened. I have no memory. I remember my employers who had this badass bar that they built out of all their stuff and we'd go up at 420 and smoke every day. Um, the one of them told me, oh, this is how you sneak pot onto a plane. You put it here, you put it here, you do this, you do that. I'm like, I'm not going to take weed with me on a plane. And sure enough, if I wasn't having withdrawals, I'm sure that's what it was, but I must have had a concussion. I mean, I must have had a seizure because I, by the time I got from Denver to Bakersfield in California, I'd seen a quiz message and I'm going to stop and get a soup. Um, I missed the turn for the Quiznos. I said, I saw a giant parking lot with no cars in it. I said, I will not back up one of these big trucks, but I will do a U-turn. So I'd done the U-turn, and that's the last thing I remember. Uh, some paramedics came knocking on the windows and said, uh, you need to come with us. And then the, the vehicle was perfectly fine. It was parked in the spot. I was bleeding from my mouth, bleeding from my vagina. I had just had a, a, a period, so it wasn't that. And I was all beaten up, and I have no memory of what happened. Either there was somebody or somebody's came and raped me and beat me up, or I had the world's hugest seizure inside that truck, and I just have no memory of it. Um, you would think that would be enough to say, okay, that's I I needed I should have said, you know, that's probably withdrawal from marijuana, and that's what happened. I didn't connect, make that connection then. I didn't want to. I wasn't ready to quit then. Uh, so I came back, and then I was unable to work. And that's kind of this all, I, in hindsight, looking back at it now, I see this all as my higher power going, this is the path I'm going to put you on until you get out of this grind that you're on. I couldn't work. I, t I took job after job after job, and I could work for maybe two months or so, and then I'd get fired because then my head would spin. I couldn't sleep. My body hurt too much. Um, I just had nerve damage, this traumatic brain injury. Something was going on in me that I couldn't do what I used to be able to do, which was any job I wanted to. Uh, that was no longer the magic power that I held. So there was very little that I could do, and I ended up hanging out with the locals in Venice because that's what people who don't work in Venice do. They all hang out with each other. And yes, I'd heard that there are gangs in Venice, but I never really saw it, and I didn't really know about it. And sure enough, if I didn't become best friends with this woman across the alley from me and behind me, uh, this older woman who had 
grandkids that I loved, and we had so much fun. We all smoked and hung out and listened to reggae, and Friday nights we'd get on our bikes and ride up and down the boardwalk and say hi to just everybody. She knew everybody because she'd lived there her whole life. And I just felt really a part of, more than ever before did I feel like I belonged because I I knew everybody and everything. As soon as I heard a helicopter, she'd call me and go, so-and-so did this and they're doing this and that's who they're chasing. And we'd ride our bikes and suddenly this group would appear and start collecting at a parking lot. And she goes, oh, that's so-and-so, he's getting jumped in. And it never clicked on me that these people were gang-related because to me, she's woman a neighbor lives in the alley across from me who has you know grandkids that I love and they I tell them on their skateboards and they'd have me pick them up from school uh when they got sick and and mom didn't feel like doing it and it turned out that mom herself was an addict and was abusing the kids and when I saw the abuse I had to say something like you have me picking up these kids at school and you have me sign as their aunt but I don't have a voice about whether or not they're in in presence of their abusive mother that's you've got to give me more power than that or else you know i got to check out so this woman and i had a falling out because you just don't mess with somebody's family especially if you're not latino and they're latino and they're in the gang and you're not and i didn't know any of this i was so naive but um somebody had told me what happens when the gangs get mad at you and how they scare you out of town and they described this unbelievable scenario of events that take place. And sure enough, if that didn't happen to me. And that kind of scared me straight. Um, I called one, the one friend I knew who lived out of Venice and told him this story. And he gave me shelter and saved my life. I was suicidal at that point because I was so scared and I was so sick that human beings would be that cruel to do what they were doing to me. I thought they were going to kill my dad and uh, wait for me to get an inheritance and then extort the money out of me. So I had done this huge run, from drove, rented a car, drove up to Idaho, told my dad all this was going on. He and I had been estranged for decades, and he drove back with me. And over the weeks that that whole process took, he and I repaired the two decades that we'd been estranged. He got me in with a social worker at Venice Family Clinic, who said, you need to be in a 12-step program. I said, I know people in 12-steps programs who call themselves sober who I smoke pot with. There's no way that that they're going to accept me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, She sent me up with an outpatient therapist at Claire who, um, when I went to the counselor and they said, yeah, you really need to be in a 12-step program, I said, they're not going to accept me. I'm not an alcoholic. And she, one, this one woman who was an ex-heroin addict said to me, let me ask you something, is your life unmanageable? And I'm like, fuck yeah, it is. I just got out of an alley with this Russian mobster guy that these people sort of made me date who had forced me to take suitcases full of I don't know what drugs and a gun that he had stolen from an off-duty police officer and stashed it in my house. Yeah, my life's unmanageable. They were going to kill him. They were going to kill me. I'm terrified. Yeah, my life's unmanageable. And she says, then AA is going to work for you. And luckily enough, I got into an AA room where the very first person I saw, um, I told her, I said, look, I know marijuana is my issue, not not uh, alcohol. And she goes, you know what? Just Just don't tell old timers that. Just sit down, listen, and keep coming back. Don't ever stop coming back. So for two years, 
that was what saved my life, those rooms and, and learning the 12 steps through those folks and hearing the stories that so related to me. And the, the one little thing that I wasn't being rigor- rigorously honest with was that I'm not really an alcoholic. So when I heard that there were phone meetings that you could call in, and especially during the hours when I don't sleep very well, which is early morning, which is 4 a.m. for me and 7 a.m. for most folks out there, I was so grateful to found you guys just a few months ago, and I have never been more at home and more grateful to share what I know of the 12 steps and having a higher power and the principles that we all try to live by and practicing them every day. And I feel finally with this share able to give it back in a 12-step motion of of sharing it with you guys. Thank you so much for letting me share. I'm, I'm very privileged to do so.